This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. Hello, and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. Today we speak with renowned guitarist, pianist, mandolinist, and singer Keith Murphy. Keith is known for his ContraDance playing with numerous amazing bands, for his collaborations with his wife Becky Tracy, and for his concert work. Keith was raised in Newfoundland, surrounded by the traditional songs and instrumental music of the island. His mother was a Scottish country dance teacher, and that tradition was part of his musical DNA. During his university years in Ontario, Canada, he discovered French-Canadian and Irish music and the mandolin, banjo, whistles, and accordion. He moved to New England in the early 1990s, drawn by the burgeoning contradance scene, and began playing in many configurations, including with Bill Tomchak, Carrie Elkin, and Fresh Fish as a guest in Wild Asparagus, and he formed the trio Nightingale, which was active for about 17 years. He also became a part of innovative dance bands Big Bandemonium and Assembly. Keith toured for many years with the Boston-based fiddle mega band Child's Play, as well as with Scottish fiddler Hanukkah Castle. He has also had a solo show of traditional songs that he has toured around the country. In our conversation, Keith explains how his early influences of Scottish music impacted the precision of his rhythmic approach. He tells us of the first instruments he learned to play, starting with a deep fascination with any piano he could get his hands on until his parents finally bought him one. He shares about how his university studies in Ontario served as the go-between from his life in Newfoundland to playing in the United States, and tells about his first contradance at an after-party at Pinewoods during Scottish Week. We learn about how Nightingale formed, and we get to hear about the meticulous approach that Nightingale had to arranging music. Keith discusses the ways that his song arranging has changed over the years and we get to hear about his teaching techniques, honed over many years of teaching Celtic music classes in his hometown of Brattleboro, Vermont, and at camps and festivals around the country and overseas. Let's dive in.
Well, hello, Keith Murphy, and welcome to ContraPulse. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. I am so happy to see you. We don't live that far <laughs> apart from each other, but, you know, in these days of COVID and winter and no gigs, we don't get out very much. Exactly. I was glad it seemed like you got to do some holiday performances just before things started to close down again. We did. We squeaked uh, in with a um, our New Year's Eve concert that we had done for <clears throat> for a long time. Didn't do it a year ago, but we uh, we were we managed to do it this year. Our our annual concert with the Amadon family, um, and we had a small kind of in person audience, but then we streamed it as well. So we got to kind of connect with that bigger group out there. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that you were able to do that. That concert seems like it's been a long-standing tradition here, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like New Year's without it. Well, that's certainly the case. That's the case for us, anyway. I think this was our twentieth, our twentieth year of doing that show. Wow. Yeah. Wow, you have <clears throat> deep roots in this town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's maybe 27, 28 years or so that I, I've been here. It's wow. quite a while. Wow. Maybe it, you know what? In fact, I, I'm pretty sure that's longer than I've been anywhere else. Yeah, even than where you grow up. It's funny, you reach the stage mm. in life when you're old enough to have lived somewhere else longer than you've lived where you grew grew up. I yeah. remember when I reached that place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we're, for our listeners, it looks like we're in your living room right now, and I see your Christmas tree lit up in the background. <laughs> it's very charming. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's early January 2022 at the moment, and um, I, I'm just so excited to talk to you. There's so many things we could talk about. I just want to get right to it. And I would just love to hear a bit about your your youth and growing up in Newfoundland and how you discovered traditional music or what your musical upbringing was. And then eventually we'll meander to how you ended up playing for concert dances. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up in Newfoundland, I, I, traditional music is kind of just out there in the public domain, I think to a greater degree than it, than it is here for the most part. So, you know, everybody in Newfoundland is, you know, can name, you know, uh, several traditional fiddle players and accordion players and <clears throat> knows, you know, a, a good number of Newfoundland traditional songs. So everybody, I feel like just kind of that that's that's kind of part of the DNA of anybody from Newfoundland. And I guess more specifically for me, you know, my mother's from Scotland and my mother uh, taught in, uh, Scottish country dancing for many years so that was really my original traditional dance background. And, you know, when I was young, I just, one of the big sounds around the house was her playing her records, getting ready for her, for the classes that she'd be teaching, playing these old, particularly the accordion-based Scottish country dance mm. bands. And then as I got a little older, I, I became very involved in that scene. And even as sort of like a teenager in, in, into my 20s, that was really like the, my first big passion as a dancer, which I would say was what I was before a, mu a musician, a traditional musician. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was like very much part of that Scottish dance scene. Um, and really, that, and that that that's what kind of connected me originally to um, to the states, to New England, was me coming to the Boston area for some of the big Scottish dance events. Hmm. 
Yeah, because I remember seeing you at many Scottish events in Boston, and I always wondered what that connection was for you. Um, you know, you play with Hanukkah, and you've just been at so many events. That's that's so that's really deeply rooted for you. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I I feel like it was. I mean, it was really like my my passion, and and I feel like you know, like there's there's a lot of the aspects of the music and that dance that are very like specific. Um, that kind of were very formative for me, you know, even the dancing, you know, which is, you know, kind of based around that sort of skipping motion. It's like, you have to be very precise in terms of like thinking about where the beat is, you know, you're, you're kind of jumping in the air and you're sort of landing, you're like timing your landing very specifically. And the music is, is, is that way as well. Like, I feel like, you know, the, that sense of beat and groove in Scottish dance music is like so precise and mm-hmm. that, that, that had a really big impact for me, I think. Mm-hmm. How did that affect your playing, playing for Scottish dancing? Well, I think just that, I think it, it kind of made me think very precisely about I like, like the, pla- yeah. the, the placement of, of beats, like, like how, you know, how I just, how I tried to kind of think about really like playing right to the center of the beat in a very kind of, sharp specific way you know those scottish bands like had such have such snap in their playing Mm. again like those accordion based bands especially they have a big rhythm section right they often have they'll have like a second accordion just playing the chords and a piano and drums and bass and like they're just incredibly tight and very very specific in in terms of terms of the snap you know the mm-hmm. placement of 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 the of the of the rhythm. So, yeah, so I feel like you know that sound, uh, like that, that that really kind of made me think very strongly about just being very precise around rhythm. How old were you when you first started playing for Scottish dancing? I was older, but when I started playing, like like yeah. the first time that I played for Scottish dancing, I was in my twenties, and I was at Pinewoods, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it was like what you know. I'm sure many people kind of remember one of those big moments. For me, I was in C-sharp minor, and uh, I was with Freeland Barber, Scottish accordion player. And I forget how it was that I'd weaseled my way onto the piano. But, um, uh, you know, it was just like one of those incredibly exciting, thrilling, and terrifying moments. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just, I was thinking about it. It's kind of like, you know, like, it's like when you drive a car for the first time, it's like you've, you spend years being a passenger in a car and you kind of take being in a car for, for granted. And then when you're actually behind the wheel, you know, <laughs> you just feel this, it, lo- it feels very different. Yeah. And, and I just remember just how, yeah, it was how exciting that was. And, you know, and I, I feel, I felt very lucky to kind of be there with Freeland, who was such a, you know, an amazing, great player. Yeah, there's a lot of things to keep track of at once. Kind of like when you're driving your car for the first time, it's like, oh, you have to shift and steer and check the turn signals and look around. And, you know, I've only played for a few Scottish dances, but it's a lot to take in as a new musician to learn, even if you know the dancing. Yeah, exactly. You, you know the 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 the, the form of the, you of how you use like a sequence of tunes in the medley is again, it's very specific. You know, at a contra dance, as you know, like. You start playing a tune, you play it for a while until you feel like you want to change tunes, if, if you do. But that's not how a Scottish country dance works for the most part. 
Yeah, there's a whole map sequence, and you don't play each tune for very long. And then there's the whole beginning and the end. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it's all I've... very Scottish, ironically <laughs> enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I don't mean to fast forward through your life story. So you grew up in Newfoundland, um, surrounded by traditional music. What were your first instruments? How did you learn to play? Um, I, I, you know, I did classical piano. Um, I, you know, I was probably nine years old when I started doing piano. But, you know, prior to that, like I, I for whatever reason, you know, I, I'd just become fascinated with, with pianos. I remember, you know, it kind of became a thing that any house that I went into, you know, before us having a piano, if I went into someone's house, I would, I remember like, looking around to see if there was a piano there and I would, I'd kind of go and I'd, I'd start to noodle. And I guess, you know, eventually became a source of embarrassment for my parents. My, my mother <laughs> decided to actually just get me a piano. So, uh, so piano was an early instrument. And around the same time, uh, I started taking guitar lessons at the local YMCA, hmm. you know, learning kind of like folk pop songs of the day. Um, but I was very, I became quite serious about in classical music and I ended up, I, I started playing harpsichord a few years later and I, I did classical flute as well. That was another serious instrument for me. Hmm. So I was, I was pretty, you know, like I would spend, I went through a, a period of serious classical practicing. Um, and then the guitar, you know, that was the thing that was kind of the one thing outside the classical world for me and kind of like learning, you know, a bunch of those mostly like 60s and 70s folk pop songs. Hmm. That was a classic era, though, the golden era of folk pop songs. Yeah, yeah. And by the time, you know, when I was a little older, when I was a teenager, you know, that became it became like a big social thing, right? I would bring my guitar to parties, high school parties, and we would, you know, sing through our Beatles songs and Simon and Garfunkel and, you know, whatever else. That's fun. Um, how did you end up uh, leaving Newfoundland and coming to the States? So Ontario was kind of the go-between uh, for me, mm -hmm. the, the, like the, the segue between Newfoundland and the States. I went to Ontario for, for university. Uh, mm -hmm. First, I went to Ottawa and then Toronto. And I ended up, I mean, that, it wasn't one big block of time because I did other things kind of in the middle of that as well. But um, yeah, I did my undergraduate in political science in Ottawa and then went to Toronto still for graduate school in political science. But um, when I was uh, when I was there, I did I did a lot of Scottish dancing uh, in Ottawa and Toronto. But that's also those places were where I really kind of got into playing Irish music. Mm. And by the time I got to Toronto, that was a that was a pretty serious Irish scene. And as I say that, you know, that became like another kind of pivotal chapter for me. Falling in with the Irish scene. Did you go to weekly sessions and things like that? I did. Yep. Yep. I went to, went to, went to the, a lot of the sessions and the, but there was also a big Irish dance scene there as well. And I would go to um, the Cayleys, which were, mm. that was kind of like, that was one thing. But right when I was there in the early 90s, it was kind of a, a time when Irish set dancing was really taking off. And if people don't know Irish set dancing, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, it's a form of square dancing, 
It's four couples in a square formation. And um, the, the the dance steps, they're kind of, they have like this percussive kind of quality. A lot, a lot of the dancers in set dancing will be wearing hard sole shoes and they'll make percussive sounds. And I was incredibly lucky when I was doing the set dancing in Toronto, it had become this big thing for young people who had previously been Irish competitive solo dancers. So they were really good dancers. And it was a pretty intense scene because being in one of those Irish sets, it was like being inside a drum because mm. they were all so good at the battering, at the at the, that percussive stepping. And you'd just be in one of these sets and it was it was just like, it was it was a it was a big huge percussion instrument being in that dance set. Wow! Yeah, if, if for our listeners, if you haven't had the chance to try Irish set dancing, you should if you can find it. It's exhilarating. I used to go back when the Burren in Boston used to have dance classes in the back room before they turned it into a concert venue. We used to go Irish set dancing every week, and I could never do the footwork, but it's exhilarating. Just it's yes. like rowdy and exuberant, <laughs> and you get kind of swung around. It's so fun. So fun. It is. It's great. So then you got into playing Irish music. Were you mostly playing mandolin at sessions or? You know, the, the Irish scene, uh, that was that was sort of a dangerous thing for me because um, I, I was all over the map. I was playing everything, you know, I kind <laughs> of thrived on, on trying every instrument I could put my hands on. I did play a lot of mandolin originally. I played some penny whistle, uh-huh. I got a banjo. I actually played in a Cayley band. I played accordion in a Cayley band for a bunch of years. That was my main instrument. Wow. And then I played I played guitar and piano, you know, as well sometimes. So for in Irish music, my instruments, it was kind of a free-for-all. I love Irish sessions where a piano is welcome because – there is a long tradition of piano in Irish music, but it's become a lot of times uh, piano is not always welcome, depending on the session. First of all, it's a yeah. really powerful instrument that could easily take over the session. But also, I think guitar is more the sound that people are used to hearing now with the music. Um, right. Did you ever study any Irish style piano or or, uh, I mean, I listen. You know, I, I listened to a few of the players. I mean, you know, Charlie Lennon was was kind yeah. of a, the piano player who was on. He was. He seemed to be kind of the the most frequently, you know, a frequent piano player on on recordings. But he has like you know he has a he has a, you know an idiosyncratic style. Um, it's very sustained. It's really interesting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it had it definitely sort of has, you know, it has obviously it has pulse and rhythm in it, but but it's it is also kind of a smooth style playing in a way. Mm-hmm. I was going to say though, uh, I remember there was this place where the, a lot of the Irish sessions used to happen in Toronto, and it was a club, and there was there were several different rooms, and this, there was a room where the sessions typically happened, uh, and there was no piano in that room, uh, but there was another room where there was a piano. And I remember in that period of time when I was kind of getting excited about playing piano, we would do the session, you know, in that room without the piano. And then when it was over, I would try to like convince a couple of the fiddle players <laughs> to come with me into the other room so that I could have like a little slot of time <laughs> playing the piano. 
I feel like every traditional piano player can identify with that feeling of trying to nudge the jam, the fiddlers to come over to wherever the piano is. Exactly. Yeah. 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 How did you start thinking about accompanying tunes? Like, did you grow up with tunes in your repertoire? How did you start playing tunes and then accompanying them? I would, so I would say, no, I did not. I mean, I did not grow up playing, playing tunes. That was definitely Hmm. something that came later. And really, like the first tunes that I that I played were Scottish tunes, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> I remember the book, you know, the the, um, the photocopied um, book binder that I that I got. Leaves. It's called it was called Leaves of Cabbage, and was something that was compiled by Barbara McCow- Barbara McCohen in Boston mm-hmm. when she was organizing a lot of Scottish dancing there. And it was a book. Uh, with with organized medleys in it so you could actually like use this book you know mm-hmm. to play for scottish dancing you know where a lot of dances actually you had to play there was always like a specific tune associated with a scottish dance mm-hmm. and then you could and then for the rest of the medley you could choose other tunes so her book leaves of cabbage would have what was called the lead tune for some of the classic dances and then her selection of you know two or three other tunes to go in a medley with that lead tune. And so um, uh, that was the book that I used when I was first kind of like figuring out chordal accompaniment uh, and kind of, you know, kind of getting a sense of, of those fiddle tunes. And so like I actually, I, I played from the book. That was the thing. And, and Susie Petroff, you know, great Scottish piano player mm-hmm. and accordion player from Boston. She was uh, an early person for me kind of, explaining to me kind of how things worked you know some of the basic the vamping style and um you know and 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 how the medleys worked uh so it was it was that there was that and when i when i was kind of getting into the irish scene you know like i i kind of initially continued on that same tack like i was a big reader from from having been you know a a classical player Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, uh, someone would talk about a, a tune. Oh, oh, this is a great tune. And I would frantically, you know, go and see if I had a book that had that tune in it. Like, learning by ear, which has become, like, such a, you know, became such a big thing for me and such a big part of what I came to teach as a dance musician, was not originally something that I did in, a, in the traditional world. I was, as I say, a big reader, and I relied on books in that initial period of time. I mean, books can be really valuable ways of learning tunes and recording tunes and sharing tunes, especially for people who don't have like a scene around them where they can just go out and play tunes with other people. You know, I think it's also important, obviously, to to play with humans and listen to recordings so you can get the feel right, because it's obviously a lot more than the notes. But, you know, there's a lot of really great resources out there. Oh, Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a great way sometimes to kind of find material that maybe is not already in circulation. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's great to kind of like learn tunes from other players, but, you know, digging through an old tune book, like an old song book and finding something that maybe you don't, you know, is not being played otherwise, you know, that's, that is a great thing. It's the same kind of thrill I think some people get from thrift store shopping or antiquing or, you know, (laughs) finding the gem in the rough that nobody else knows about. It's like looking... For a treasure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's right. And including, you know, as you know, like, you know, all of these tunes, 
come in many different versions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and sometimes you find a version of a tune in a book that's a little different from the version of the tune that's kind of in common currency that people are playing. And sometimes you find something cool, you know, in that transcription of the tune in the book. Yeah. And, you know, the folk process isn't necessarily intentional. Like we accidentally take out cool parts of tunes and that becomes the common part of the tune. And then, you know, looking back and seeing another version, you can find a lot of wealth there. For exactly. sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we left off. You're in grad school in Canada. You're playing at sessions. And then what happened next? <laughs> so, um, you know, I was in grad school and I was, um, I was sort of working on my master's paper. Um, but at that point I'd started getting gigs, you know, I mm -hmm. was getting dance gigs. I was getting concert gigs. Um, I was getting pulled into like all kinds of crazy music. I was playing with klezmer players and, you know, people playing Eastern European music and, you know, kind of a pretty eclectic range of stuff. Uh, and original music, one of the people who I started playing with at that point is a fiddle player who tragically died at a very young age, but Oliver Shore, like mm. one of the, one of the great, incredible players and composers and just minds in, you know, in contemporary traditional music and playing with him kind of became like an education in itself. I so I was doing played with him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He has some a, really interesting albums. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was amazing. an, he was an interesting guy. He was an interesting <laughs> guy. Um, but so I was getting these gigs and, and then I was, I, I was, I was basically burning out, you know, in, mm -hmm. in grad school, I was kind of, you know, reading thousands of pages of kind of dense political theory and, and slowly kind of going numb in various ways. And, and then I thought, you know, uh, maybe I just need to take a little pause from academic work. Maybe I'll just sort of let myself kind of play music for a little while. And that's what I'm still doing. <laughs> How's the pause going? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's pretty extended, extended. <laughs> what was your master's thesis on? Um, it, oh, it was on state theory. Um, <laughs> wow, I've already lost. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was kind of on you know ways in which different social and economic forces actually uh, influence the 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 structure of states and governments and, and policies. Oh, I see. Yeah. So how did you, you ended up now, you know, taking your break from school and playing a lot. So what brought you to the States and to Boston? Scottish gigs? Well, yeah. Well, so originally not Scottish gigs so much, although I, mm -hmm. maybe I had a few of those, but um, at some earlier point in coming down to do Scottish dancing, I um, I heard about this thing called contra dancing, and uh, did my first contra dance, you know, at an after party at Pinewoods during a Scottish week, and um, and sort of kind of became intrigued with that. Mm -hmm. And it's true, Vivica Fox actually was a person who was kind of another important crossover person for me. Mm -hmm. She was, uh, she is a great Scottish fiddle player, part of the Scottish scene. She was, you know, also going to do those Scottish dance events. And we started playing some music together. 
And at that point, she was in Vermont. And I, I, I forget the exact sequence, but I, I, I think that she had the idea that, that she was going to, she had, she asked me if I would come down to play with a contra dance with her and a couple of friends of hers. And those people were Chris Lair, the flute and pipe player, and, uh, and Jeremiah McLean. And, uh, and so I came down to Bristol, Vermont and, um, and, and we, we did a contra dance there. That was your first contra dance? What a great group of people. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's quite possible that I've kind of uh, for, missed some some other moment, but that's that was one of my early memories of mm -hmm. uh, of, of playing playing for contra dancing. Had you contra danced before besides Pinewoods when you started playing for it? Yeah, I um, you know, subsequently uh um there, I found the contra dance scene, which was very small at that point in Toronto. But wild asparagus used to come to Toronto. I think maybe every second year, and kind of somewhere in the middle of my aware, burgeoning awareness of contra dance music and dancing, those guys came to Toronto, and I remember going. And of course, that was a big event because those guys would come, and the local group kind of, you know, the ranks were swollen by all these other people from outside Toronto and from hither and yon coming, you know, for the event. So that was a big scene. Mm -hmm. And I have very, I have, I have a pretty clear memory of seeing those guys being at that dance and, and hearing them play. That's so fascinating in terms of the timeline that they were one of the first bands. I just always think of you as like, like happening at the same time as a country dance musician as Wild Asparagus, but they were doing this long enough that you were able to get inspired and influenced by them before you were even playing for dances. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Cause, cause those, those guys, they, they'd already been around for, they've been doing their thing for a little while at that point. They were already on their maybe fourth fiddle player, I think. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. So what were some of the first regular contra dances you played for? There was a little series in Toronto. Um, uh, and, you know, there were, I think at that point, there were maybe two bands in town. Mm -hmm. And so um, Emily Miller's mother, Val Mendel, mm. she was in Toronto uh, at that point. And I forget how she and I connected, but... You know that their family they moved around a lot. They they moved every few years or so because of Emily's father's work with um, with, with Reuters. But they were in Toronto um, while I was there, and somehow I connected with Val, and Val was very very keen to get a contra dance band together, and so she and I started playing. And that was another you know she was another great person for me in terms of kind of like learning about contra dancing and she fed me a lot of recordings um that I listened to that again you know became really influential i mean i remember you know val was the one who introduced me to the american cafe orchestra which mm -hmm. is kind of one of the groups in my pantheon of you know great great uh, great bands of any kind and certainly great dance bands yeah who are some of your other influences what were you listening to uh, in contra dance music, yeah. Uh, well, you know, she she you know she would she gave me uh, you know all the, the some of the, the people who were 
kind of playing at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rodney, like, you know, some of mm-hmm. Rodney's albums, the, the airplane recordings and, um, and wild asparagus. Uh, I, I, I listened to those guys a, a lot. Um, I mean, they, you know, cause, cause, cause those guys, they were, they were, they were groundbreakers, you know, mm-hmm. they, they were doing some pretty amazing things. Like I, I still remember like thinking, whoa, like you can, you can do that. <laughs> you can do that for dancing. Um, uh, American Cafe Orchestra, like, like they, they were huge for me. Like that's another band that just had an amazing groove. Like there's something there's like, I still feel like I hear the, those old cassettes, those old recordings. And there's just a way in which that way of playing just resonates so deeply for me. Carrie Elkin, he was an, he was another one. I remember getting uh, Carrie's first um, first cassette, Soiree Matin. That was very influential. I listened to um, to uh, Yankee Ingenuity. They had their their CD. Uh, I remember like listening to Kate's piano playing. That was definitely you know. I remember like listening to those recordings and trying to think like, wait, you know, what what is going on there with on the piano. <laughs> That was that was definitely like a little puzzle that I spent a while kind of trying to decipher. Wow. You know, it's funny because when I was a new contra player, I, uh, you know, did that too. I would listen to them and try to decipher things. And man, stuff that you and Jeremiah did on the Nightingale things were top on the list of things I tried <laughs> to decipher. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. And, you know, all these other influences, they all get, you know, we all are influenced by people. We work it into our own style. We make it our own. We pass it forward. And so it's just really cool how that happens. I think, you know, I, I think the, that process, though, of like listening to something and, and it kind of being, um, you know, maybe like impressed or, or, you know, that you like it, but you just can't figure out, it just makes no sense to you. Um you know, like I had that experience also with a guitar player who was very influential for me, Dahi Spruel. Like I remember listening to Dahi's guitar playing and I just, it just made, it was great. But like, I just, I, I just could not figure out what he was doing. And I would just like listen to it and listen to it. And and then, you know, and then I would go away and I would kind of like work on my own playing, you know, maybe sort of trying to incorporate something, some small shred of his playing. And then I remember like at one point kind of going back and listening to it, and I thought, "Oh, I get it. <laughs> I understand what's happening now." And I think, you know, so like you talk about listening to stuff, you know, and like initially, it's kind of, it's like this, it's this maze, it's this puzzle. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go away, and you kind of work on your own playing, and those sounds kind of sit maybe in in your mind somewhere in the back or in the middle of your mind, and and you know, eventually. Something there's some kind of crossroads, and you think, oh, okay, yes, now I, I get it. That's that's not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way about fiddle tunes. You know, like for me, not growing up around fiddle tunes, at first they're like gibberish. They're like a whole bunch of notes. And when new right. students are learning tunes, I, I joke that some tunes to them sound like notes in a blender. Like they don't happen in any discernible order. They're not predictable. But the more tunes, obviously, that you play, your brain recognizes the patterns. And then all of a sudden, it's like learning a new language. And once you become fluent enough in a language, you 
you know, first you just recognize the sounds and then it all starts to make sense. Yeah. Which is amazing. So what were some of your first bands, like when you started doing music seriously? Oh, uh, in, in traditional music. Yeah, or yeah. or not? Did you have some other kind of band? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I mean, I played in. I had some rock bands when I was in Newfoundland when I was <laughs> when I was younger, but um, those are lost to the mists of time. Um, you know, I I found a fiddle player to play for Scottish dancing in Toronto. You know, uh, I was very keen to kind of make that happen, so I had a, I had a duo with a with a, a, a woman who I introduced to Scottish fiddling. You know. So that was definitely uh, kind of a little learning project for both of us. Mm-hmm. I had had that contra dance duo with uh, with Val. I had Irish bands that I played with in in Toronto. We had a our version. There's an, an American jigsaw band, but I had a Kaylee band in Toronto called Jigsaw. But then you know when I came to the states, um, I, I talked about playing with Vivica and Jeremiah and Chris and. And um, that was a band uh, at one point, Pete mm-hmm. Fire, <laughs> um, somewhat short-lived. But really, uh, you know, when I coming to the states, when I kind of made the move to the states, it was it was around the formation of Nightingale. Mm-hmm. So Nightingale was was kind of the first big band of mine in the states. Although I was also I'd also started to play with Carrie Elkin in Fresh mm-hmm. Fish. That actually was kind of happening around the same time. And again, you know, learned a lot playing from from Carrie, one of the great fiddle players of in contra dancing. Um, who else did I play with? Um, I uh, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think sequentially <laughs> if there was a sequence. Um, I was I played in big bandemonium. Uh, oh I, right. Um. That was a really fun, fun band and a, and a fun exercise in arranging. I got, I, I, I did some tune arranging for that band. The other big band, actually, prior prior to Big Band Ammonium that I played in, was the band of two names: Popcorn Behavior initially, and then later Assembly. Yeah. And 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 I, I actually spent, you know, that was a band that I played with for for longer, even though I was kind of the last member to join. You know, Sam Thomas and Stefan had been a trio for for years before I came along, but that was a great that was a great band. I mean, that was um, when I look back on it, that was a I, I was very fortunate to get to play with those guys, even as, as young as young men as they were, they were formidable talents even then. Oh, absolutely! And when I still love those albums, and when you listen to them, you can hear the the germ of the spark of what all of them you know have in them to become it's just incredible you know and all of them have amazing musical careers now in all different ways Thank you. 
Yeah. Oh, there's so many things I want to ask you about. I'm going to derail myself. I want to ask you about popcorn <laughs> behavior and night girl and all these things and how you ended up in wild asparagus. Um, oh, I married into wild asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> That's the easy one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, you've gone to St. Croix with those, with, with wild asparagus and played all over the place. And yeah, it's been quite the, quite the adventures. Um, man, where do we start next? <laughs> mm-hmm. So how did Nightingale form and like, what was your approach? Did you want to form a band that played all kinds of music? Like, I assume you didn't form it as a contra dance band. You just sort of happened to play for contra dances in addition to the other things that you were doing. Well, uh, I guess I could say that Nightingale formed because Jeremiah and I needed a place to stay on our way to New York City one time. <laughs> we were Jerry and I were actually going to play in New York with with Fresh Fish, and um, we were gonna we were, we wanted to meet up beforehand and then travel into the city together. And we were trying to kind of figure out where we would meet and where we would stay. And Jerry said, "You know, uh, I know this woman Becky Tracy." She lives uh, just north of the city, uh, near New Haven. And so um, we ended up meeting there. And of course, that night we took out our instruments and we played with Beck. And uh, and we kind of knew within about five minutes that we we were going to do, we were, we're going to do more playing. So... Um, uh, yeah, so so you know we we sort of found a bunch of things to play. Oh, and and I guess and then the the other kind of part of that equation was that Jerry actually had been asked to put a band together for a dance weekend in North Carolina, mm. and so uh, you know pretty soon into that session I think or at the end of that evening, you know we realized well this would be a this would be a really fun band to to have do that that gig. And so uh, we started organizing a tour to, you know, to, to go down to North Carolina. And I guess we, you know, we realized, you know, right away that there was other stuff that we wanted to play outside of contra dance formed structured music. And so that first tour was this mix of mix of dances and concerts. I think the first gig that we did, I think, was was a concert in Montpelier, Vermont. But um, but yeah, so so but we did sort of form with the idea that we would do both of those things, concerts and dances. Mm-hmm. Man, do you have recordings of any of your early rehearsals or your first concerts or anything? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we do. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I just always think it's really interesting to look at the early work from you know any artist or writer or anybody you know it's just really interesting because it takes a while to define a sound and nightingale had such a carefully crafted intentional sound but yet at its center is just the musical interplay between the three of you which i imagine you all knew from the very beginning so yeah it's like listening to that raw sound before you decide what it's going to be and like shape it into something it's just really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I right. Like I think, uh, I think we kind of had that that sense of wanting to kind of like mess around with the forms of arrangements and things. But really, the first thing 
for us was, I think, was a sense of groove and just like rhythmic connection. I think that was the thing that really got us excited initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everybody has a slightly different rhythmic groove that they play tunes in, which our listeners may or may not really think about. And sometimes some melody players just lock in together like magic, and sometimes they don't. And it has nothing to do with how well they like each other, you know. But to find people who your groove fits in with perfectly, it's amazing. It it doesn't happen necessarily that often. Yeah. And and I'll say, like, even, you know, even for us, and we thought about groove a lot, um, you know, there there would be times when, like, it wasn't um it wasn't like fixed in stone you know like mm-hmm. it was never a thing that i felt like we could take for granted um you know uh if somebody you know if one of us kind of if our attention was slightly elsewhere you know uh, we would have to kind of we'd have to kind of work to kind of make that thing happen to make 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 that that kind of groove connection happen i think i think mm-hmm. that that's the thing for me like i mean i guess there are some great you know, some players out there on a certain level where they just totally have it. Um, you know, they don't have to think about their groove. I feel like it's something that I I never I never take for granted. Like, like you know, and there's always like another step deeper that you can kind of go into your groove. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it was always it always required you know it always required attention and some amount of work. Absolutely. But even but but even then, I mean, like but you know, having said that, you can you can be playing with certain people and working as hard as you possibly can and <laughs> still it's not it's not happening. So yeah. I, I feel like like we were lucky that, you know, we could make it happen. Yeah, when you have that natural proclivity, it makes it easier. But it does take work. It doesn't, you know, it, it takes learning. I think as a musician, individually you have to have the technical skill to be able to play your instrument at the level that you can hold down a solid groove and have your own sense of space and physicality of feeling the music in your body and having your own center and then being able to listen and respond to other people and to what they're doing, you know, right. so it's like developing your own technical skills. Cause if your head is, you know, worried about where your hands are going or what you're doing, you can't really be present with other people in the same way. That's right. That's right. And that's, and you know, and that's, kind of circling back to part of our conversation earlier on about written music. I mean, that's the thing, you know, when, when I'm part of like a teaching workshop, I will often tell dance musicians that, you know, if, if you rely on written music, the single most important thing that you can do as a dance musician to improve your playing is to learn to play by ear. Because for that very reason, like if you want to really um, connect musically and rhythmically with another player, you have to be able to put as much of your attention on that as possible. And, and if part of your attention is going through, you know, a piece of paper on a stand, that's, that's going to, it's going to be an impediment. It's going to be an obstacle for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as you're becoming a band together, some of it is just time, just spending a lot of time playing together, right. And getting to know each other and kind of learning each other's habits and merging together and learning to give and take with each other. Maybe someone's usually on the front of the beat or the back of the beat. Um, but then also rehearsal. Um, what was the kind of process like that where you really became very tight as a band? What kind of things did you work on? Uh, well, what was it like? It was intense. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'd like to say that no band ever spent more hours of discussion per bar of music than, than <laughs> Nightingale. And, you know, uh, we, we developed sort of a technique where I think we would, you know, we would, we, we, we were, we tried to be open to any possible idea. So, you know, um, and we would, and we would record a lot. We would record a lot in, in our rehearsals. So, you know, <clears throat> if we would be playing a thing a certain way and somebody else would say, well, you know, what if we do it this way, no matter whether you, what, what your initial reaction to that idea was, you would do it and you'd record it. And then you'd you'd go away and you'd listen back to it, you know, because because sometimes you know sometimes the way you hear a thing after the fact is not the same as how you hear it in the moment. Mm-hmm. So you know, so there was a lot of experimentation, um, and um, yeah, a lot of and and a lot of reflection, I guess. And you know, and 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 we would spend a lot of time after the fact, like you know, we we would let things percolate a lot and we would try things and then we would come back and someone would have written some harmony part or had a concept for, um, you know, some riff or groove to kind of go along with it or some other piece of melodic material to kind of go along with something else. So there, and you know, so there was a lot of writing and thinking and, but we did, we did spend a lot of time, you know, we did spend a lot of time and, and more so as time went on, I think, you know, cause like, you know, initially you sit down and, and like from whatever source people kind of have certain ideas, you know, um, you know, about how to arrange something, how to play something. And, you know, you kind of go through that initial layer of of ideas and then, and then at a certain point, then you got to, then you start digging a little deeper Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and I think, you know, that was, that was one of the great things, Jeremiah, especially like he, you know, I think one of the things that he brought, he was, he's a very eclectic listener and player, but, you know, would listen to like a wide range of things. And, and, you know, he was like someone who had a real understanding of like Latin rhythms and, um, and, um, and was, you know, could play swing music and um, had a lot of background in Louisiana and, and soul music and stuff. So, you know, see, see, he was, he was great that way, kind of in terms of bringing material in. And I think, uh, he, and, and a great idea generator. And I think, I think one of my strengths in that, I would say, I, I think I was, I, I, I was kind of good as an editor sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I could kind of see how pieces might fit or I might hear something go by that, you know, might've been forgotten, but, but I would, I would kind of latch onto it. So. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to compose or arrange together as a band is just generate ideas, right, for a while and don't judge them. And like you say, say yes to everything. Just try everything, even if it repulses you or you have this weird, you know, oh, that won't be good. But you have to resist that feeling, right, and go with it. But then going back and like collecting those ideas and listening back to them and editing, as you say, and choosing what you're going to do is the other half of the process that's just as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, listening to all your various albums, like through what you do with Nightingale and, you know, your amazing, beautiful solo albums, it, it seems to me like 
it's about like taking an idea and just honing in on it and taking it as deep as possible. Um, what other kind of methods do you use in your own creative process to do that? You know, like if you're going to, like you do a lot of song settings and you'll take a beautiful song and instead of following the traditional chord changes, you'll put this just piano riff under it that just doesn't change for the entire time. And I just love it. And it's very trance like, how do you, how do you work up those ideas? How do you deepen them? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think it's, it's kind of changed and evolved over time, especially like, especially my, my sense of song arranging, you know, that's, I think that's changed a lot because over time, you know, I, I kind of, even when I did some my initial solo song recording, that was quite arranged and had, you know, um, other musicians playing and it was, you know, it was, I, I used a lot of textures and counter melodies. And then some of the things that you're talking about, kind of, kind of like ostinato, you know, chordal mm -hmm. textures and things. But then, um, sort of as time went on, I actually started kind of doing more solo performing. That was just me, me and, you know, playing guitar mostly. And I kind of evolved a different way of playing and arranging those songs and kind of, and just a whole other way of sort of thinking about the songs. Really kind of doing, I mean, not that, yeah. I mean, I, I think in many ways, I would I would have something in my arrangements, even those solo arrangements, maybe that was like it was creative, but also more simple. Um, and I think over time, like with the songs, you know, I try I still try to have something, you know, something unique in them, something kind of um, atmospheric, say. But I try to do it with a very with a minimum of ingredients you know it's a different style of mm -hmm. cooking like um and i think i just i try to get a little deeper some kind of like more pure emotional connection with the song mm -hmm. like you know if i sort of think about the trajectory of you know like how i thought about song arranging with nightingale where in a way the song was almost just a, another vehicle often for some kind of instrumental texture mm -hmm. in a lot in some cases anyway mm -hmm. you know if that was sort of one end of the spectrum you know in more recent years like i just i try to and you'll hear you'll hear a lot of traditional traditional singers sort of say this for me you know the words really became paramount i just i came to think much more deeply about the words of a song just taking them more seriously and investing more of my energy just into the actual um, conveyance of the pure emotion of the song rather than worrying as much about, you know, the shape and the texture and the dynamics around it. Uh, sure, you know, of course, to some degree, still thinking about those things, but but the balance definitely shifted a lot for me over the years. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, both, like, the way that Nightingale's song arrangements have the instrumental parts woven in among the vocal parts, and sometimes the tune is, it comes in at a place that's not quite on the A or the B. It's kind of interwoven in this really interesting way. Um, it's just beautiful. 
But then there's also, like you say, just stripping these songs down to their essence. Like for me, everyone has their like favorite Nightingale song. But for but for me, your version of Hills, the Pete Sutherland song, it's just it's just the way all the parts come together. It's just really beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was yeah. version 27 of that song. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, how does that, I wanted to be a fly on the wall so bad. Like, can you imagine being there and just listening to you figure that out for days, hours, weeks, yeah. probably I, we, performing we, it, tweaking it? Yes, there were several generations of flies that would have <laughs> gone through the formation of that song. <laughs> 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 Yeah, they have a short life cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, you know, like I, I remember it was that was like a long process, kind of really settling on that groove, and then the parts and kind of putting them together. But uh, you know, it was incredibly satisfying. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. that was one of the really great, rewarding feelings and moments, like when when you kind of feel like you've kind of, you've realized, you've kind of like realized something, you know, that you'd started working towards, you know, hours and weeks and maybe months earlier. Mm -hmm. And that it, it was, a, it was a very satisfying arrangement to do and a great song to start with. Of dreams, to the hills 
gathered no Then our farewell scene The lands below me How pure anthers predime The far bells chiming God give me strength to climb And hills for climbing People don't always realize that's often a lot of dead ends or false starts or moments where this isn't working in arranging. And I think the trick is, you know, how do you deal with them when you come across these things? Well, this isn't working or this needs something or what do we do here? Or, you know, how do you handle those kind of situations when you're like, got an idea, but the next idea is not coming yet? Yeah, well, uh, you know, you can always you can always walk away and come back to yeah. it another another day, you know. And sometimes, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes those those questions kind of get answered quickly and sometimes very slowly. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the ones that take the longest to kind of work out, like hills, you know, end up being worth worth the worth the price. Yeah, just have to wait until the time is right when the idea comes, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't force it. Yeah. So as a concha dance band, you did a lot of cool stuff. How's that for the understatement of the year? <laughs> I am no Terry Gross. <laughs> but like you're, you're doing things that like people hadn't done before necessarily, you know, like being inspired by wild asparagus and you know, Wild Despair is giving you kind of permission, sort of in the sense of like breaking that ground of saying, well, we can do these things, but you're doing a lot of things that hadn't been done before. And what was your approach to that? Where did you get ideas from? I don't, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I remember more clearly all the ideas that we stole from, from other people. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I think that in a lot of ways, I mean, I guess we had, we had some original, I guess we had original ideas, but in some ways, it was just kind of throwing together like some of the favorite things that we'd heard uh, La Boutine Suriant do or mm -hmm. some other Irish bands or, you know, um, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's never any shame in stealing, you know, like if you, if you listen to 
accounts from the Beatles, from Paul McCartney talking about how the Beatles kind of came up with some all their different classic songs. Song after song was based on something that they'd stolen from from somebody else. Them mm-hmm. trying to imitate Bob Dylan on this song or somebody else on that song. I feel like Nightingale, you know, we did a lot of that as well. Like we were, we were sort of trying to, we wanted to imitate other bands, things that we thought were really cool, but um, probably we didn't succeed in imitating them. You know, we were trying to, but we didn't. And that was, that became instead like our unique thing then, you know. Uh, In some ways, I think it was less about us trying to do something on our own. I think it's just what happened, I think, is is kind of how how it Mm -hmm. felt to me. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's really empowering for any new contra musicians out there, especially folks in bands. You know, like this is what all musicians do, right? Is that you get inspired by other people, either in your scene or outside of it. And then you say, oh, I want to try this. Let's do this and see how we can apply this to contra dancing. And even Nightingale did that. And, you know, before them, Wild Asparagus did that. And everybody's been doing that. We all exactly. do it. Right. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, it's a question of, making it your own in a way that is respectful to the source that you got it from and letting it be its own thing. Once it's you, like, you know, I think that's the magic is not trying to sound like anybody else. And, you know, like Nightingale inspired so many other bands that there are a couple bands that when they started, they sounded a lot like Nightingale, but then over time they formed their own identity as they play together and learn what to do with those influences and how to make them their own. I'm not going to mention yeah. names here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My legal team is standing by ready to <laughs> preparing a brief right now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like Nightingale does all these things for dancing that, you know, I don't know if other people were doing them at the time, you know, like you certainly were bringing in tunes from other traditions, you know, but that was like Wild Asparagus was also doing that and Fresh Fish. But then things like, you know, I'm curious which of these things Wild Asparagus was also doing, you know, like the the, the classic halftime groove. Yeah, well, um, I mean, someone with a higher degree of musical musicology. Um, yeah would have to answer that question who, who kind of developed that first, but, you know, I mean, we, we, the other band we haven't mentioned is the Clayfoot Strutters, yes, which were around at the same time. And they were doing a lot of that, that stuff as well. Um, so again, uh, like, I don't know who gets the credit for introducing that idea into, into contra dancing. Um, it might be neither one of those bands, but, uh, but they were bands that I was aware of doing that and of course you know jeremiah played in the clayfoot strutters so mm-hmm. he kind of he kind of had that in his pocket to start with and you know i mean the, and the other thing for, for me like uh uh i think a thing that that he and i particularly bonded on was kind of our common repertoire appreciation of pop music you know from mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s um which i kind of which i mentioned you know earlier you know, that was a big, that was another big part of, you know, my listening. And so, you know, like a lot of those, a lot of the grooves, a lot of the, that kind of riff based song, um, uh, was, was something that I was very ready to kind of, it wasn't, that wasn't my idea, but when someone said, you know, let's do this, I was, I was ready to jump on that bandwagon. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important. I mean, for any band, it's also like the milieu, like the context around the band and like who else you're playing with and who you're hearing ideas from and who are your contemporaries. And ideas just jump around and they flow from place to place, back and forth, especially if you're in multiple bands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What was the reaction when you started doing like, you know, things like abrupt transitions, which is, you know, one of the hallmarks of like, everyone knows if you start playing a generic tune and it's the last dance of the night, it's not going <laughs> to stay that way for very long. Right. Yeah. Or, um, you know, trying some like more uh, Montuno kind of influences or halftime grooves or all those things. What was the reaction when you started doing those things? Was it already pretty common or did you get some looks or did callers have things to say about it? Um, well, we were lucky, you know, with the callers, uh, you know, the callers who we worked with, you know, they, they, they weren't caught off guard. They, they, they knew about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, Steve Zakon Anderson, you know, we, he was, he was a great caller for us early on and Lisa Greenleaf, you know, from, from the early days of Nightingale. Mm -hmm. It was great, you know, and she, you know, they, they were, they were aware of these things, knew how to call to them, you know, um, we definitely, when we, when we play those things for dances, you know, from very early on and Becky, and this was Becky's great strength. I feel like, like we, we ultimately, Jerry and I would defer to Becky, I think ultimately as kind of the the dance decider, the the decision maker about what was going to work or what wasn't going to work or what, you know, for a given dance, you know, dance series of dance figures, whether a particular piece of music of ours was going to work or not. She was kind of, she was kind of a linchpin there, but the dancers. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I can't say if, the dancers were reacting to things that we did because they'd never heard them before or just because they liked how we did them or I, uh, it's hard to know. Um, I guess it's true, you know, that <laughs> like if we were to do some of those things today, you know, probably the reaction would be different because, because maybe because, because dancers have heard those things mm -hmm. for so many years that maybe they, they wouldn't have, the same impact. Um, so I don't, I don't know how much of the impact of Nightingale was because the dancers hadn't heard those ideas before or not. Yeah. I mean, I think it had its own impact, right? But, but it sounds like it wasn't that shocking to people in the beginning when you were trying these things, it wasn't out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you know, dancers in different places would have different frames of reference, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, and, but, and also to be fair, like the ideas themselves, like, you know, ideas are important, but execution, they kind of, <laughs> they, they, they stand or fall on execution. Right. So, um, uh, you know, you can kind of get an, you can kind of get a reaction from a certain idea, you know, if you just kind of, if you just kind of muddle your way through it. But if you really want to move people, have people respond emotionally, mm -hmm. you know, it takes more than just, just the idea. 
Right. Like if you're going to have an abrupt transition, you know, you can foreshadow the transition and build some tension that's resolved when you switch and rehearse the transition so that you're executing it perfectly so that no one's confused in that moment about what's happening and, you know, other things like that. What are the kind of things you would think about? I know I just listed a bunch, but. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the thing, you know, more than anything for me is that it, it's got to be a great groove. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, uh, um, a concept of a certain sort of dynamic transition or rhythmic, you know, groove, um, you know, syncopation transition, whatever, whatever it is that, that you're doing. If, if the, if the thing before the transition and the thing after the transition are not dead in the pocket, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that effective. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like doing a jig to a reel, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, you know, something, an idea that's been around, around for a long time. That's always going to be exciting, going from six eight into four four, but boy, if you if that beat is rock solid in the six eight, and the that same beat is unmoving when you move into four four, like that effect is going to be so much greater. So, you know, it's, it's the thing that we would we would often talk about. I've often talked about when I've done you know dance workshops. Again, it's sort of like all of those tricks, arranging concepts, they're great and they can have, they can have, you know, tremendous impact. But if you don't have the fundamentals underneath it, and for me, the the most important fundamental of all in dance music is rock solid rhythm and groove. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, you know, everything else just becomes kind of window dressing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, I mean, for your dance playing, especially that's just such an obvious hallmark of your playing is just this unassailable groove. And it kind of, it almost seems effortless in a way, but it's also very focused and intentional, whether you're playing guitar or piano or mandolin or doing foot percussion. How do you develop that groove as a player? Like, where did you develop that skill or that centeredness in your own musicality? I, you know, I, I mean, it's like, it's the way a lot of musicians would answer a lot of questions like that. It's like, it's listening to other great players, right? It's like, it's having those sounds in your head and really kind of uh, internalizing them, you know? So for me, mm-hmm. like, gets back to that, to the sound of, I mean, you know, so like, like I have a little catalog of of sources like this but i think about those scottish dance bands there's mm-hmm. just those those bands are like are just trains you can like an earthquake could happen and those bands would not would not drop a millisecond from their groove mm-hmm. uh those irish set dances just again like this that you know driving percussive sound uh, the pop music that I talked about, you know, great pop songs having a really great groove that you just want to, mm-hmm. you want to like, you know, you want to nod your head to and tap your feet to. Um, the f- great French Canadian bands, like you hear, you hear La Boutine Suriante, you know, um, with a great groove on the feet. And you just, you listen to things that just move you. And you just, you know, I think... I think if you get moved yourself by those sounds, if you come to love those sounds, mm-hmm. then they kind of work their way into you. And that becomes a thing that you in turn can tap into as a player. Mm-hmm. How do you practice? Like, did you practice with a metronome or play along with recordings or? Um, I, I, I have, I mean, I do practice with a metronome. I have practiced with a metronome sometimes. Um, 
I wouldn't say that's been the most influential thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, um, and have I played along with recordings? Maybe a little bit. I think I probably, you know, maybe I, I, I did foot, French Canadian foot percussion along with some great, great grooving uh, recordings. I don't know that, I, like, I wouldn't have played piano along with, uh, with those, with recordings or guitar. Um, but it, you know, I mean, I think here's another, here's another great groove player that I, that I think of uh, as a way of trying to answer your question. You know, Jeff Klaus with the Horseflies. Mm. And, um, you know, Jeff, Jeff plays the banjo uke and he doesn't do like, he doesn't change his groove very much from like from one set of tunes to another, but it is deep and mm-hmm. you use that word unassailable. That's kind of what you think about when you hear Jeff, Jeff, he is a machine. And, um, but when you talk to Jeff, he talks about, it's kind of like a meditation, and I think I think that's that's the thing. I mean, there is there's a practice. You ask about like, do you how do you, how do you practice it? For me, it, it's more like uh, an intentionality. It's like mm. it's just kind of like it's almost like sitting down to meditate in a way. It's like you you, you sit down at your instrument and you are just gonna try to sit as deeply in the groove as you can, and you're gonna try to not think about you know that car horn outside or or mm-hmm. whatever you know any other sort of distracting thing i think it's a practice the practice is like a meditation kind of practice it's just like it's a kind of focus that you kind of work on and it's based on those connections that you make as a listener for me mm-hmm. it's really interesting you know like thinking of the the precision that you talk about in scottish dancing you know, and your love of groove across all these different kinds of music. And yet it's just channeling it through you and letting it be meditation. Like let your thoughts go by like clouds in the sky, right? (laughs) Just focus on the groove. Yeah. I mean, did you ever like do things like, I mean, sometimes if I want to get into a groove, I'll just play the same thing for like half an hour or something at home. Like, do you ever do exercises like that or does it just come? I don't to think. You? Yeah, I don't think I ever. I don't think I ever did that. I don't think I ever really did a lot of exercise work. I mean, the one thing that I'll say, you know, beyond kind of like that state of mind rap that I that I that I've given, like, I mean, there there's clearly like there is like a physical, there is like a technical thing that you have to do then to kind of right. like put those ideas on your instrument. Right. And those are different, obviously, for for every instrument that you might play. And it's true. I think, in some ways, like um, you know, I think kind of as a teacher, I, I, I learned a lot because teaching is another way of kind of making you have to sort of focus on your technique. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, and that process of like trying to convey, you know, trying to help somebody else who you know who physically is kind of doing something awkward on their instrument. Um, and then kind of like thinking about that and kind of trying to break it down. That, that actually ends up like refining my own sense of, of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So like as a piano player, you know, like, uh, you know, I've, I sometimes I'll talk with students about kind of like just the, the actual physical way in which you, you kind of like 
use, you know, your shoulder and your arm and your hand to kind of create this um, sense of movement, you know, coming down on the instrument. And I think, you know, I, that's something that I probably sort of thought about and that came to me in the course of teaching. But then it helped refine my own playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like when you mentioned the horse flies and talking about the, the groove machine, when you hear the name horse flies, you instantly think groove band, like it just pops into my head that way. But yeah. the, the banjo, like the, the mechanics of playing the Glauheimer banjo, you know, every instrument has its own groove to it. And, um, you know, like the, the, the guitar, you mostly play dadgad when you're playing dances. Is that true? For dance playing. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Are there particular things you do on the guitar that help enhance your dance playing? Um, are there particular things? Well, um, I'm trying to think of how to answer that. Uh, you know, there's a, for me on the guitar, like at dances, for better, for worse, like there's a lot of different things that I would do. Um, um, here, so I, I have my guitar. <laughs> yeah. <behind me. laughs> um, so, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I would sometimes play just like a very straight groove, a very sort of straight kind of swingy kind of offbeat groove. Right. So that's like a certain, that's a certain kind of rhythmic zone requires a certain kind of physical approach to like, mm -hmm. to kind of how I do that versus... That, that's a very sort of different kind of a thing, um, as is. You know, that I might do in setting up kind of kind of a lighter texture. Um, or, if, or if I was doing kind of a more syn syncopated groove, like. A, I guess if, if, if I was to try to answer your question, if I was trying to like sort of focus on one thing, um, you know, in my guitar playing for most of those things, certainly like, like in real playing, sort of whatever the groove is, if it's an offbeat swing groove, if it's like a percussive thing, if it's a more open sustaining thing or a more syncopated thing like that last thing, I do sort of try to think of my, my strumming arm has kind of like this pendulum. Mm -hmm. Like when I teach guitar classes, I talk about a lot of what I do, a lot of the different sounds being underpinned by this down, up, down, up, down, up, down. So even like this thing is is down, up, 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 down, up. And it's part of what kind of anchors me even if it's a very syncopated thing, thing that kind of like anchors me into like a very steady groove in the same way that this thing has a very different, comes, comes across as a very different sound, but it's still down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. Like my hand doesn't go down, down, up. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't sort of stop. There's no stop motion. 
even if I skip a strum in one direction, my hand is still tracing that motion all the time, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. Yeah. And then you're changing the emphasis. You know, you could put a lot of backbeat if you exactly. emphasize one way. That's yeah. right. That's right. And, and so like, like if, I, if I teach a guitar class, I'll do this thing where I'll just have people do just a very unaccented thing. One, two, three, four. And then put an emphasis on the downbeat or the offbeat. One, two, three, four. Or on the downbeat. One, two, three, mm -hmm. four. And then we'll do a syncopated thing. But it's still down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. So I, I, I guess, I guess that's, you know, that's like a, a thing that kind of holds a lot of my guitar playing together um, is that notion of kind of an under, a physical underpinning that's mm -hmm. just kind of like a, um, a steady pendulum. Do you ever play boom chuck on the guitar for dances? Never really a thing that I did, no. No, not so much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like you don't have to. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of country dancing music has that underpinning of boomchuck underneath it. And some people play it. But country dance doesn't need that to dance to. You know, like the, the I call it the dad gad strummy strummy for lack of a better technical term. But it's a very forward moving kind of propulsive feeling instead of the up and down of boom check, whether it be guitar boom check or piano boom check. And yeah. This seems to be more your aesthetic. This is partly just a stylistic and aesthetic choice. Yeah. It seems like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. lovely social band who walked the way to Canaan's land. Ye who have fled from Sodom's plain, say, do you wish to turn again? Oh, an arm you ventured to the field, well armed with helmet, sword, and shield, and shall the world with dread alarms compel you now to ground your arms? Oh, and have you ventured to the field, well armed with helmet, sword, and shield? And shall the world with tread alarms compel you now to ground your arms? Fires fill the sky from whence you came, and brimstone in a driving rain. Ash and dust upon your heels While you in haste to safety steal Oh, now you ventured to the field Well armed with helmet, 
sword and shield and shall the world with dread alarms compel you now to ground your arms oh now you venture to the field well armed with helm and sword and shield and shall the world with dread alarms compel you now to ground your arms Lovely social band Who walk the way to Canaan's land Ye who have fled from Sodom's plain Say, do you wish to turn again? Oh, and have you ventured to the field Well armed with hand, sword and shield And shall the world with dread alarms Compel you now to ground your arms Oh, and have you ventured to the field Well armed with hand, Sword and shield, and shall the world with dread alarms compel you now to ground your arms? playing piano um what what is what tradition is at the heart of most of your concert dance piano playing i i think i mean again like i i sort of try to at different times i kind of dip into different traditions but maybe french canadian is kind of a pretty central uh thing for me that i kind of gravitate towards um and um you know, and part of that sound, there's, there's been there's a couple of elements to that sound, but one of the things that comes into play for me with that, in addition to the rhythmic thing, which, as I said, is like is, always feels like the, the the fundamental thing, but the technique in French Canadian playing that you'll that you'll know is that notion of um, of a kind of an inner voice, you know, that you typically mm -hmm. kind of create with your right thumb. So rather than just have like the left hand playing a bass note and then the right hand playing a chord, um, your thumb, the right thumb is going to go down at the same time as the left hand often and is going to trace a little, you know, ascending or descending line kind of in between the, the, the rest of the, of the two hands. Uh, 
So it, it's mm-hmm. kind of it's like that little little um, counter melody kind of a thing. Yeah, it's also called thumb leading or the third hand. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about that is it it, it gives this very downbeat centered kind of feeling because now you're marking the downbeat both with the bass and with like a right. counter melody or harmonic element and yet you still have the lift of the other chords lifting off and so it's a very centered kind of thing i could see that being something you could build a really deep groove around if you if you like sink into it enough yeah yeah and i think it's true i think you know like like i think you know part of my thing is really kind of feeling that downbeat very strong and mm-hmm. and the thing i talked about earlier about like really thinking about like placing that the, those notes right in the middle of the beat and i think it's true i think i think that having that right thumb kind of accentuate that that downbeat with the left hand i think kind of helps helps kind of achieve that mm-hmm. that, that emphasis do you ever play any Cape Breton style piano with like rocking octaves and stuff like that? You know, I have a, I have a, a kind of a fake Cape Breton thing that I do, but yeah, yeah. That, that is it's another fun. mode. The, the, the day I discovered Cape Breton piano and just that rocking left hand, it was a revelation for me because it's a way to keep that rhythmic engine going in your body. Like you talk about with guitar strumming, I wanted to find a way to strum a piano and I couldn't mm-hmm. figure it out. And that was the closest way I could do it, where both in Cape Breton piano, both hands are involved in the rhythm in so many different ways on the downbeat, not on the downbeat, like syncopations, subdivisions. And they can always go, even if you're just playing one note, you know, you could just rock your left hand on the same octave and not change notes, which is kind of like strumming to me. Right. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I think I think that the guitar is sort of set up when you when you do all of those down up down up down up strums you kind of have more immediate access to a lot of those subdivisions and yeah. access to play syncopations in, in 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 these little micro places that you have to like work a little harder at to achieve on the piano but you're right mm-hmm. one of the ways of doing that is separating like your pinky on your left hand and your thumb and you know kind of bringing in having the left hand create notes in two different places as opposed to just one time with the octave. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do, like, what are the kinds of things you do on the piano? Like, do you do things where both hands are doing different things in terms of, like, you know, like counter melodies or chords or harmony parts in one hand and rhythm in the other hand? Or are you mostly accompanying with both hands together? Um. I, you know, there, there's some arranged things that I have that I've done over the years where I have like a little counter melody thing that I'll do. I'll often sort of, I'll sometimes do like a thing in sixths in my right hand. And Mm. if I, if I have like a kind of a slower kind of counter, counter melody thing, um, yeah, but I'm, you know, um, I would say like my technical repertoire is not really wide as a as a piano player. Like I'm not, you know, I, I don't I don't do like a lot of fast moving stuff. I don't do like fast melodic work, for example, like on the piano. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but there's that unassailable groove, right? Like that's how I, I can always tell when you're playing the piano. I could be walking into a hall from a hundred thousand feet away, and I would know it was you. It's just that <laughs> that groove, just always, um, which is just a really great underpinning. Yeah, well, it's it's true. I mean, and I have to say, <laughs> uh, I think over time, like I. I came to enjoy playing the piano more at dances, I think, than the guitar. I think I, I hmm. think I, over time, yeah. And then, but then, and you know, but with Wild Asparagus, which honestly, like the most dance playing that I've done in the past, uh, I, I don't know, um, six, eight, ten years has probably been, been with Wild Asparagus. Because in a lot of ways, I've done, you know, I've done less uh, dance playing over the years. But I, and and the playing that I've done has been a lot with Wild Asparagus, and the instrument that I play mostly there is mandolin, mm-hmm. and and that was that that's like another kind of rhythmic thing that I worked out. Party with Nightingale, I did a, a lot with Assembly, and then again with um, with Asparagus, being in these bands where, like, basically all the rhythmic jobs were covered. You know, where mm-hmm. somebody else was kind of covering, was doing all the heavy lifting for in the rhythm section. And there was, you know, and the melody was being taken care of. And the mandolin, I discovered, was this instrument that I could sort of use to sort of sit in the middle and sometimes kind of play some of the melodies. Um, but then to kind of do sort of this in-between kind of thing where I was sort of doing rhythmic stuff but maybe kind of more of a riff that kind of wasn't the same as what the piano player was doing, but kind of locked in with that and was kind of like this little counter, little piece of counter melody, counter rhythm. Um, so that became like another kind of fun place for me to sit rhythmically in, in a band. Mm-hmm. That's a fun place because you can go in so many different directions depending on what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And Mandolin can be a very rhythmic instrument. Like I love the interlock of like piano and mandolin together. Like sometimes I feel like piano plus mandolin equals guitar, but better. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> the strumminess of one, but they don't get in each other's way very much sonically. Whereas sometimes piano and guitar can kind of step on each other's toes. Right. If you have a thoughtful piano player who leaves room for the mandolin, but it's just a really, um, it adds a lot that like kind of high frequency brightness that it adds. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it you know, it, and it can just bring like a lot of punch, um, mm-hmm. can bring a lot of punch into, into the, into the mix, into the arrangement. Mm-hmm. I think on some recent episode of Contrapulse, I was talking to somebody else and I was talking about, I love the thing you do on flying tent, um, with the mandolin where you're just going chicka, chicka, chicka. You're playing it like way up or something. <laughs> so great. It's just like pure rhythm. Well, there was a thing that I used to do on on that where I would play, I would be, you know, you normally strum in front of the bridge. And I think the thing that you're talking about that kind of creates this kind of wild, kind of chaotic, jangly sound is when you switch to playing on the other side of the bridge. So it's not really, it's not really tonal. It's just kind of like this kind of weird, jangly, percussive thing which I would always have to be very careful to do very near the end of the dance because it would always throw the instrument pretty wildly out of tune. <laughs> Anything that I did after that, if I, you know, the more I did that, the more, more out of tune the instrument would become. 
Wow, you have to use it sparingly. <laughs> yeah.
when you're thinking about chords for a tune, do you chord tunes differently depending on what instrument you're playing? Like, do you think about chords differently if you're on the piano versus the guitar? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's like a very natural thing. It's funny, like I mm -hmm. play with this uh, fiddle player, Hanukkah Castle, a great Scottish fiddle player in Boston. And Hanukkah is also a great piano player. She mm -hmm. writes a lot of tunes, and so she also often has like very specific ideas about how she wants tunes to be chorded, like like the the chords that she wants behind her tunes. And she'll often have these you know pretty detailed charts. And I always have to kind of kind of hash it out with her because a lot of times the chordal ideas that she has, I mean not a lot of times, but sometimes there will always be like a place or a couple of places where there's like a an accord or a chord inversion. That sounds great on the piano, but just doesn't mm -hmm. really make sense on the guitar. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it just naturally there are certain things that are going to work, you know, on one instrument and not on the other and vice versa. So, so you know, things kind of tend to kind of come out differently. Yeah, just also just the patterns they make in your hands and the shapes that are yeah. comfortable and the way the instrument resonates at certain times. All these things can yeah. affect those inclinations. Yeah. I mean, you've done a lot of arranging for really interesting groups, you know, like the Celtic Sojourn and Child's Play and lots of different things. How do you approach an arrangement like that? Like, do you have like a process? I don't even know how to ask this question of like, how do you do it? But I think that's something a lot of people would wonder about. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it, I guess it's easier for me to kind of think about it in very specific terms. Like yeah. with, I think, you know, with, I mean, like if I had an arranging idea for Nightingale, it would be because I imagined the sounds of those players, you know, playing, playing their instruments. And that's something that I learned in Child's Play also, like, uh, you know, Child's Play would play arrangements that people had sort of just done for multiple strings and stuff. And I think the thing that I figured out was, you know, that I, I knew the players and I knew things that certain players did really well. And I could sort of mm -hmm. think of arrangements that kind of catered a little bit to the strengths of, of specific players. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was, you know, that's an important thing. I mean, and, and, you know, and of course, like, but, but I'm also just kind of like doing things that it, you know, basic ideas, chordal ideas, rhythmic things that I, that I find that I gravitate towards. And then, I'm, you know, and then I'm sort of trying to kind of translate them in ways that are going to work with, as I say, the players that I know and, um, you know, how, how I think they play. Do you hear arrangements in your head before you, like, before you write them down? Do you like audiate the music? Um, I, I would say I'm not, I'm not, I mean, depend, it depends on the scale, like, like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, you know, for a, a trio or like if Becky and I are kind of like, if I'm thinking of something that Becky and I are, are going to do, you mm -hmm. know, I can think of like a, a fiddle line, you know, that's, <laughs> that's pretty easy for me then to kind of like, actually like think of like how that's actually going to sound. If it's a bigger group like Child's Play. Even if I know the players and I'm kind of like thinking that I'm kind of writing to, you know, to what I think those players sound like, that's a bigger, it's a bigger reach. And I was, I remember like I would kind of, 
arrive at some of those rehearsals with these, you know, pretty big arrangements sometimes. And I wouldn't totally know if they were going to work or mm-hmm. I, I, and I wouldn't totally know really how they were going to sound, mm-hmm. which was always, you know, again, it was one of those terrifying and very exciting things. Um, so, you know, I like, I, I think, I think there are other musicians who are much better at doing that at kind of like kind of hearing really hearing clearly uh like how those things are going to play out ben, big band of money it was the same thing i mean even you know i got to sort of try my hand a little bit at, at some arrangements for um you know for that for that um brass section and i would kind of have an idea but because i'd never done that before i didn't know those instruments really well and didn't know how to voice things particularly well it was a little bit of a shot in the dark. You know, mm-hmm. I think in the end, like, they were fairly simple ideas, simple, but hopefully, like, effective ideas. And I think, you know, I think they, they tended to work. But no, I didn't, I couldn't imagine them Yeah, really clearly. Because I think, you know, we all hear stories of, like, these famous classical composers like Mozart or Haydn hearing all the music in their head before they ever wrote it down. But, you know, to demystify it for people, a lot of times... You can kind of hear, sort of imagine what it would be like, but it's also just using experience and probably trusting your instincts about things you've tried in the past that have worked and haven't, and then being able to adjust things, right, in rehearsal yeah. or wherever, if, if need be. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, and, and I've, so, like, I'm just, I'm also just thinking, you, you know, so, so, like, so I've done that thing. I've done that thing of showing up with an arrangement for players, but I realize you know, the thing that I enjoy, that I feel more comfortable at and enjoy more is really like a more organic thing. I mean, mm-hmm. even if I feel like I'm in a, a leadership position, sitting down with a bunch of players and playing through something and then saying, you know what, what if you, could you play something higher there? Mm-hmm. You know, could you, you know, kind of sketching out an idea rather than, you know, notating it note by note. Um that always feels, it, it certainly feels more comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is more organic. And that's also kind of a process that you could follow with a band too, right? It's like listening to each other and saying, oh, what if you do this? And what if I do this? And it's like hearing those sounds and then collecting them and then editing them and refining them into something, Yeah, you know, pulling out the ideas and taking them deeper, like what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you've done a lot of coaching, you know, teaching, leading band workshops, teaching your students. You and Becky have a music class. Um, what are some of the things when you're teaching dance musicians specifically, what are the most important things that you teach? Spoiler alert, is Groove going to be in there? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I think uh, I think one of the big concepts that, that we come back to, um, you know, that basically like, you know, most musicians are going to are going to define themselves in one of two ways. They're either there primarily as a melody player or mostly as a backup player. And I think one of them, one of the concepts that that we've brought to dance teaching and dance workshop playing, is trying to make everybody think about the other side of the equation more. So to get rhythm players thinking more about the melodies, actually getting the rhythm players to learn the melodies, with the idea that you can't really figure out how to what the harmonic possibilities for a tune are if you don't know really how the tune goes really well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and to know what the rhythmic possibilities are if you don't know the tune. And then for melody players to kind of understand what kind of goes into the shaping of a rhythmic concept so that they can in turn kind of play to that. Um, and uh, in some in some cases, you know, underpin it that, you know, that a fiddle player doesn't only have to play the melody, that a fiddle player can be part of the rhythm section. Um, I think that makes, I think that makes a huge difference, like in, on, in ensemble playing, you know, mm -hmm. dance playing. Um, it, it's a just, it's another kind of level of, you know, play, being a real ensemble player. Like that's part of, part of that, that process. But I think it's a big hurdle for a lot of players. Like, you know, there's a lot of rhythm players, you know, who've never played a melody. So that, that feels like an important thing to kind of tune into. And, you know, a lot of rhythm, a lot of melody players who don't necessarily think about an offbeat groove, playing, you know, playing over an offbeat groove versus playing over a syncopated groove or mm -hmm. you know, those are all the things that kind of, I think, determine like just how strong an ensemble is going to be. Mm -hmm. What kind of exercises would you do with people to help them develop those skills? Well, when we, when we do, like when we do the workshops, everybody learns the tune. We, we start by mm -hmm. teaching a tune. And so everybody learns the tune. If you're the piano player, you play the tune. If you, if you're a guitar player, you try to play the tune at the very, if you can't play it, you sing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you just, you just take, you invest that time. You, you, you know, you put the time in that the melody players are putting in to learn the tune. And then the same thing, you know, we don't, wouldn't send the rhythm section off to kind of work out the chords. Everybody talks about the chords, hmm. you know, and the melody players like listen to what it sounds like to, you know, move to the four chord here instead of staying on the one chord. And, and then they get, you know, have them vote on, you know, well, what chord do you want to have happen there? And, so I think I think you know the exercise is to just do that process with everybody. Everybody's involved in in all those different levels of arranging. Mm -hmm. It's true. I've seen a lot of workshops where the rhythm players have to learn the tune. Everyone learns the tune together. But I feel like it happens less often where then the melody players have to sit and go through what the rhythm players go through. And I think that's really valuable. Like even if you. Like you're saying, even if you don't know what the chords are, learning what they feel like, like the four or the five or the six minor, whatever, they all have a different feel. And yeah, and often, you know, I mean, as you know, like um, uh, chord choices are often part of like, I, I mean, hopefully they're like, it's not a random thing, but it's because you're mm -hmm. trying to, you're trying to create thing, something, maybe like, maybe not going to the four chord you're, you're going to do that because it's kind of creating tension and that's kind of a cool thing. Well, if you're trying to create tension in the chords, then everybody wants to be part of that process, whether you're playing the chords or not. You want to be aware that you're trying to make this thing happen. You're trying to create this build. Mm -hmm. And then you can support what the whole ensemble is doing Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. more consciously. Yeah, and at the heart of it, how how can you get to the essence of a tune or a song or something without knowing it inside and out first? Yeah. By by heart. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't be in the moment because you're trying to think of how it goes instead of being able to like react to it and look at it from different angles and experiment with it, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you know, you can't understand what the possibilities are like 
what the possibilities are like in those little technical ways, rhythmically, harmonically, but you can understand what the possibilities for a tune are emotionally, you know, mm -hmm. that it's like, it's something that is going to be fast and driving or, or maybe you, maybe not fast and driving. Maybe you could take that same tune and, and you, you know, you kind of play it in a more gentle way. Maybe that's going to work as well. Maybe especially if you, you know, if you choose this particular chord to kind of play under it. So it's all like part of like a, a process of like, like what, like, what are you trying? What's ever, what are we all trying to achieve with this tune? Mm -hmm. When you're on stage playing for contra dances, um, what, what's your, what's going through your mind as like a dance musician? What are the kind of variables you're thinking about besides the music itself? Um, well, I, I'm often <laughs> the variables I'm, 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 I'm kind of thinking about how well the dancers are connecting. Like I'm thinking, I may be thinking about like the tempo. Is mm -hmm. this tempo good? Is like, are the dancers connecting with what we're playing? If they're not, is there a problem with the tempo? Is the tempo too fast or too slow? Mm -hmm. I, I often will like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll often try to keep my eye on the collar to see if the collar is looking happy with, with the tempo. But I'm thinking about that. I'm, and then maybe the tempo is good, but, Maybe I feel like the dancers are not super locked in with what we're doing. Like mm. this thing that I thought was going to be a great punctuation point. The dancers are not, are not really tuning into that. So like, maybe I need to like overemphasize some big hit, you know, um, to kind of, to kind of like really sort of make that connection. Cause sometimes like I think in dance playing, like uh, I like to sort of think about, a lot of possibilities about a lot of nuances but at the same time i feel like often in dance playing you've got to paint in big colors and big bold colors because there's a lot happening out there in the dance floor and it's easy for like this little cool idea musical idea that you've had to not re be registering on the dance floor because there's too mm -hmm. much noise on the dance floor there's you know or there's too much whatever <laughs> and so i think well what what do i need to do to, to get that idea across. Maybe I need to like you know, punctuate that phrase harder. Maybe we need to play quieter to kind of like make the dancers work a little harder to like listen. Mm -hmm. So, I, so I, I think, I think that's a thing, you know, you know, that's, that's an important range of things for me, like mm -hmm. while I'm playing on stage. I remember, I think the, the volume thing is, often forgotten about like I remember when I was a teacher and I learned this teacher trick where if your kids aren't listening it's easy to want to raise your voice over them right. but if you just change your voice to a whisper all of a sudden they're going to be like wait what's what's going on it forces right. them to tune into you it's such a simple trick and it's so counterintuitive but that's it's absolutely unless they can't hear you at all <laughs> you know it's very effective right and it, it can be a little harder to do that midstream but I do remember kind of making that discovery, like, uh, you know, if you start to play, you know, towards the end of the walkthrough or maybe at the end of the walkthrough, but before the dance has actually started and you're playing and, you, and you're playing something very quiet, that effect, if you're, you know, often, and if you're lucky, maybe, of just how the volume on the dance floor can come down, like the dancers will think, oh, okay, this is going to be quiet. I got to listen. If I, you know, I, I have, I've got to, I've got to bring the, my attention sharpen my attention here, you know, on the music. And that, I remember yeah. that feeling very powerful. 
Oh, you're bringing back these wonderful memories for me of sitting on the stage at the Guiding Star Grange um, and just watching you do rolling starts, you know, or <laughs> Jeremiah, like whoever was playing rhythm at the time. Um, and like you're you're setting a whole mood for the dance before it starts, like subliminally. It's like you're, you're calming everyone down, you're amping them up, you're drawing them in, whatever, before even the four potatoes happen. Right. Right. It's, that, that is the power of that technique. That, and that, that's not something that we invented by any means. Yeah. But it's, you did it to excellent effect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it's amazing as a dancer because then when the potatoes go, your body can already like glide into the move because you kind of already know what the feeling and the groove are going to be. And so. Right. Right. It's also, you know, for me, just thinking about about those moments, it's also like the the other thing about making those moments really work is kind of having good communication with the caller. Because I've had those Mm -hmm. moments where, you know, even sort of trying to do that, even sort of trying to do like a little setup, but the caller kind of has some other notion in their mind about Mm -hmm. where they're placing their energy. And I've, I've felt those moments where we've started to dance right away where what we're trying we're trying to sort of do some kind of atmospheric quiet thing and and the caller is kind of like you know balance and swing forward you know like (laughs) just the tone of their voice is just completely out of sync with what we're doing and i'm just reminded you know you cannot overstate your intentions Right. Also, we've all learned don't spring a rolling start on the caller if they're not ready for one or if they don't want one. Like it's right. nice to ask right. them unless it's a call you've worked with a lot before and you know like exactly. what yeah. each other is up for. You know, like I feel like when Noah and I play with Will Mentor, he's up for pretty much anything. We know what we can do to surprise him. Um, but you know, the caller, I've had I've seen bands start a rolling start without talking to the caller, and then the caller stops everyone to do like a demonstration on the floor, and then your rolling start has to come to a halt. That is, you right. know, always good to ask. There's lots of opportunities for awkwardness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've been, we've all been through these moments where like the dance is running off the rails or the tunes off from the dance, or have you tried any ideas for dancing that just didn't work like if you had moments where you felt like things weren't working <laughs> well I, I this is not exactly necessarily the kind of scenario that you're thinking of but i'll tell you that you know in the caribbean um when when i for many years now with wild asparagus we've had this thing david and i especially but also some other becky sometimes try to write a tune every day it's mm-hmm. like just like a little personal goal and you know and so sometimes uh you know, that, that tune gets written kind of late in the day and then there's a kind of a scramble to kind of teach the tune to the rest of the band and and then figure out like what it's going to go with. You know, it can be a pretty, sometimes a pretty frantic process. And I remember being very excited about a tune that I'd written um, that we had just kind of pulled together at the last second. And it was going to be the last, it was the last tune in a medley. And um, we played it. It was, it was going well the first time. And then the second time uh, it was kind of a little more awkward. And then the third time, like people were like, the caller was like looking around, shaking, Lisa was shaking her head. And anyway, it turned out that I'd written a crooked tune and hadn't realized it. <laughs> <laughs> and you had taught it to everyone and no one had caught it. 
until that's right. that moment. That's, that's right. You know, the, like the uh, the editorial <laughs> proofing process was not in full function. Anyway, so um, that tune is called The Missing Beat because even though I <laughs> went back and I rewrote the tune and made it square, uh, I had neglected to um, to notice that it had originally been missing a beat. So that's an example of a tune that I was very excited about that didn't go quite as as expected. Um, and again, this is like not an answer to your exactly kind of what you're thinking, I'm guessing. But I'll tell you, I had written another tune, you know, again, brought it to the Guiding Star Grange to play with Wild Asparagus. I was very excited about the tune. I thought it was going to be a great tune. And we played it. And, um, and I thought, oh, that's really, that was not as good as I thought. Maybe that's not a keeper. And Anne Percival was like, that is a great tune. We got to play that again next time. That was on the Danforth. Um, yeah but but uh, but for a moment there i thought well maybe maybe not that's funny you know for those who don't know that tune has become part of the the legendary contradance pantheon of beloved tunes played all over the place it's a very popular tune um you don't always know what you have and sometimes the simple ones you don't know how good they are in the beginning because they're not flashy. But yeah. then that tune has a lot of repeatable playability. Like it just withstands repetition and has a nice emotional arc. Yeah. So good for Anne. Good you for didn't Anne. bury it forever. That's right. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue because I've been wanting to ask you about, you know, your tune writing process and everything. You've written so many wonderful tunes that, we all know and love, and you have your tune books, which are now, I believe, compiled all in one big book. That's right. Yep. Uh, Black Owl Music. And I'm just working on figuring out how to make it make it digitally available, but that's not hasn't come to pass quite yet. Oh, via PDF or something yeah. like that, or yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Get with the modern age; everyone can put it on their iPads. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I think for a lot of people who write tunes, to say what's your process is kind of reductionist. Like most of the reductionist questions I've been asking you for this whole interview, it's just how do we get to talking about something is really what the question is for, right? Yeah, yeah. You probably write tunes in a lot of different ways at different times, but what are some of the ways that you write tunes? Yeah. Um, so um, in no order of, of frequency or importance or anything, you know, sometimes uh, I, I write tunes that are very chordally based, and and it's kind of based on a on a on a chordal concept. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, or just even like just kind of like like a certain sort of rhythmic kind of a thing, you know, um, you know, like like the flying tent that kind of has like this certain kind of uh, motif of like this sort of syncopated thing. Like the tune itself doesn't particularly go very far, but the melody kind of has like a certain syncopation in it. Um, you know, sometimes I'm sort of thinking of a certain kind of genre or a certain other kind of tune mm -hmm. that I want to sort of write something almost like in the style of. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, sometimes, you know, um, sometimes for me, like a tune can either be, can be very instrument specific. It can be very tactile. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and so like I, I'll try to write tunes on different instruments sometimes because ideas will pop out. Some, I've written tunes on the, on the penny whistle, 
because there are things that happen under my fingers on a penny whistle that I never would have thought of on mm -hmm. another instrument. So like, you know, and so on any instrument, the mandolin or the, or the piano, there are certain things, certain just like physical paths that, you know, my fingers might find. I might stumble on a little thing. I might have no concept. I might just sit down and just be moving my fingers and, and then, and then kind of find something. Or I might do, write a tune away from an instrument. Uh, sometimes I'll write an instrument in the car and mm. uh, I'll, I'll try to think very melodically. Um, you know, I have a bunch of tunes. I feel like I like the idea of like a, of a clean melody line, something that's very singable. And mm. sometimes that's kind of where those tunes came from. They were, they were singing ideas that I had. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and, and sometimes like, and sometimes the tune kind of comes fully formed and sometimes like I have fun going back through some of my voice memos and I hear myself trying to kind of work out a certain tune and I can kind of hear like how I'm sort of moving towards what the tune ultimately became. But like, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it is more of a process, more of a, you know, kind of shaving off a, an interval here or there, or, you know, kind of just move, but moving, sort of nudging things around a little bit. Mm -hmm. So those, I think, I feel like those are, there's sort of a range of, of ways that I kind of, I try to get at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think having a voice recorder or something around seems to be useful for you. There's some people who can write tunes and just remember them forever, but I would immediately forget everything I wrote if I didn't have a way of recording it. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, and sometimes like I, I like I'm working on something and I, I get overly bold and I think, oh, I'll remember that. I don't need <laughs> to put that down. And that's, you know, usually not the case. Yeah. And, and so just like arranging, there's like, it can be two different processes. There's like the generating ideas process where you're generating part or all of a tune or even just a little riff or a little motor pattern that then you can later invoke the editing process and go back and choose the best moments from that voice recording and like craft a tune around them. Like, do you do things like that or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I often will find, I feel like, um, you know, if, if I get a great a part of a tune, mm -hmm. I I'll, I'll often like walk away, you know, cause I feel like I know that a B part will come to me. Like, you know, I don't mm -hmm. need to force the B part. Uh, I, you know, I, I could write a B part at the same time, but sometimes I think I just need to kind of like walk away and come back to it and really feel, you know, kind of get a sense of where the tune needs to kind of go from, mm -hmm. from that A part. And that's, that's not exactly like an editing process. I guess that's a, it's an, it's another slightly different thing, but even, but even yeah. in the, even in the editing process, I think sometimes like for me, like walking away, like I know if I get a certain germ of an idea, I don't need to force it right away. I can walk away from it. And I know that mm -hmm. I'll, 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 I'll come back to it with a certain clarity. Yeah. Taking the time to internalize what you've already written. Cause often you have, we haven't memorized it yet. Right. It's just has come out and taking the time to really get inside it and get to know it before it, the rest of the tune will just kind of come out sometimes. Yeah. Right? It can be better tune that way. And it's funny how like the end product in retrospect, as I say, when I listen back to some of those, um, you know, earlier sketches of a tune, I realize how like the end product, it was kind of, it almost feels inevitable. Like 
I think, mm. well, of course, of course, that's where, where it was going to end up. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you have a way of like testing out your tunes before you play them? Like, do you yes, I play do. them I, on different instruments? No, I make Becky pay, play them. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my, that's my test. Oh, you have a built-in fiddle tester and she has a really good ear for tunes. So you have a ringer in the house there. She does. And sometimes, sometimes I, you know, I I like, I have to defer to her on versions of my own tunes. She's, Mm. she, you know, cause you know, like any, any player, she'll sometimes change a couple of notes here or there, you know, Mm -hmm. it's part of that process. And, uh, and the truth is ultimately she ends up playing my melodies more often than I do, you know, because, because I, I'll write them, I'll play them for a bit. And then usually I end up accompanying them. Mm-hmm. So I end up, end up deferring to her in terms of, in terms of like the, the definitive version. Right. Whether that be just the mechanics of playing it on the instrument, sometimes changing a few notes, make it so much flip more flowy, like easier to play. Right. right. And then also her playing has such this wonderful lyricism in the way that she plays melodies. I, I, I imagine that would fit your tune writing style well. Yeah. She has a good sense for that. When you write tunes, do you hear chords in your head at the same time? Do you ever write chords first and then write a tune to the chords? I think Do I they have. Come out together. I think I have. I, I think um, I think I have certain sometimes written chords. Like I've had sort of a chord concept. I think also though, like I was actually just working on a tune today. I think um, I feel like subliminally sometimes when I'm just like working on a melody, I'm just I, I I'm as I move from phrase to phrase. I, I, you know, there's certain, there's a certain chord pattern that's already being implied. Sometimes I actually try to make myself, if I'm working on a tune, I, I try to stop myself sometimes mm. from kind of thinking or not even thinking or, or not thinking or subconsciously thinking in terms of chords. Like I have to force myself sometimes to write something that is less chord specific. Mm-hmm. There's some Irish tunes like that, especially that just seem completely ambiguous and they don't imply any chords at all. And as a yeah. chord player, I'm just like, eh, I don't know. I don't feel like this one needs chords. You know, the or, Scottish tunes like that too. Well, or, yes. Or <laughs> that, that Irish tune is like a, is like a, um, you know, a blank canvas on yeah. which you can put any chords that you want. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I remember asking Jeremiah about that. Um, you know, talking about some of the nightingale arrangements, like was it Golden Wedding Reel that I'm thinking of that you guys did like a kind of Montuno kind of riff underneath or something. But sometimes it's the simplest yeah. tunes and finding these simple tunes that allow you to do all these different things with them. I think the big nightingale example of that was uh, Lady Anne Montgomery, which was always like a oh, big tune. Oh, yeah. That was a big tune for us. And Jerry and I, you know, we had kind of, you know, a whole suitcase of alternate chord progressions that we could uh, impose on that. And that would, you know, and that would, that, that kind of was a big part of the, of the sound of that tune for us was stretching it every, you know, every possible way we could think of harmonically. Right. There's all these different chords. And then there's also playing with the harmonic rhythm of like when they happen and how often they happen and when they change. Right. You know, you seem as a rhythm player, you seem 
focused on like building an arc or building a mood. Like the groove extends beyond just the rhythm. It goes into the chords and the, the tone and the presence. And so um, what are some of the other things you play with when you're kind of creating an arc? Like in terms of like changing chords or not changing chords or harmonic tension, those kind of things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think uh, texture, you know, like texture slash dynamics, you know, mm -hmm. kind of sometimes if I'm, if my intention is to try to create a big arc, then I'm going to try to think at some point in the medley or arrangement of where maybe I can kind of do something lighter, kind of in a middle register where I can kind of, or high register where I'm going to, and, and try to like sit there for a while. Cause I feel like, you know, often to to kind of create a sense of movement, you have to first establish a sense of place. You kind of like, you've got to establish yourself in a place. And then once you have that, then you can kind of create a sense of movement away from that place. So, you know, so a big thing might be to kind of like, rather than kind of, you know, play in the standard hand positions, you know, on the piano, for example, maybe move both hands up into like the middle register or a slightly higher register and try to think of some voicings. And maybe that's going to kind of affect how frequently I change chords or what, you know, what the chords are. Maybe the chords are more spare and higher. And that all be kind of becomes part of like, this kind of quieter, more gentle kind of place. And it leaves room then to kind of move then, you know, at a later point in the arrangement down into like a bigger register, maybe where that's kind of got a new rhythmic thing that kind of also comes into play. So it's really about kind of mm -hmm. like mapping out kind of places where you can go. Mm hmm Yeah. The, like dancing to like the kind of arc that you would make with Becky or wild asparagus or with nightingale. It's really just, it's like being on this ride, you know, it's, it feels so intentional. You're just floating on this rhythm, this groove, and like you're being swept along. You're holding everybody in the palm of your hand, right? They're like putty in your hands <laughs> at that point. Right. Well, that's, that, that is the ideal.
but it's very intentional. Um, the way you create those arcs that like, were there other people doing that when you started besides like, I think while well, the asparagus was also doing that kind of thing, I wasn't yeah. around then, but is that your, like, did you come, how did you come across that way of playing for Contras or is it just kind of how your aesthetic meets with Contra dance? You know, I, uh, I don't, I don't totally remember. I don't, I, I don't know if that sense of a big arc was some like, I don't want to claim that it was something that, 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 you know, that, that we did kind mm -hmm. of first because I don't know that that's the case, but I can't remember. I can't remember. That's an idea that I can't remember stealing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that, that kind of, that big arc. I remember doing that. I remember working on that concept with Bill Tomchuk. Hmm. Um, uh, Becky and I did a lot of playing with Bill for for a bunch of years at one point. And um, yeah, like, like you know, Bill used to like to play one tune um, sometimes, you know, for for a dance. And uh, and so then like kind of thinking, okay, well, like, what are we going to do? Like, hmm. you know. And and you know on, honestly like um, like I I want to say like uh, as a as a article of faith like I don't think you have to do a lot of different things I think a great band like the Horseflies the Horseflies are not gonna do a, go to a lot of different places necessarily over the course right. of their them playing a tune and you don't want them to like they mm -hmm. just create this zone right from the start of the dance. And you just don't want to go anywhere else. You know, it's this, right. you're, you know, you're in, you're in this, you know, hypnotic state. So, um, but for whatever reason, you know, maybe that f didn't feel as accessible as easily, easy of an option, you know, when we were playing in mm. some, some other situations. And so we kind of gravitated towards this idea of like, well, so what, what can we do to kind of stretch this out? And, you know, mm -hmm. what's it going to be? Is it going to be like um, a sudden shift? Even if we're playing the same tune, is it going to be a sudden shift from from one texture, voicing, rhythm into something, into like some syncopated version of the same tune? Or is it going to be a more graduated build? Is it going to be a slower kind of thing that starts simply and then kind of intensifies somehow? And, you know, and Bill, the thing that Bill would have brought to that equation was his improvisation right because mm. bill bill could he would start playing a tune just the straight melody and then he would kind of improvise just a little bit he would stretch that tune a little bit and then a little bit more and then you know he could graduate like degrees of improvisation away from the tune to kind of create a lot of energy and so the rest of the band me at the piano or whatever i was playing you know that was that was a strong cue a strong lead to sort of try to figure out, well, like, what can I do to kind of follow along with that? Hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And it's like, like you say, there's a lot of different ways of doing it, right? Like, there's a lot of different ways for playing for consonance, and they're not necessarily better than each other. They're just different strokes for different folks, right? Exactly. And, that's right. You know, some dancers love the feeling of dancing on this very controlled arc, and some dancers love the feeling of an endless roller coaster of improvisation where no one knows what's about to happen. The musicians, 
the people on the floor, you know, like it, I, I feel like those things affect people in different ways. Like when the music is kind of off the cuff and loose and raucous, I feel like people interact with each other differently on the floor. They might like talk to the, each other more, you know, as opposed to right. when you're dancing in this very focused experience where everyone is on this ride together, which builds community in a different way, right? Because you're all having the same incredible experience together. So they're just all different, different things. Yeah. I remember when I was in a, new band we were trying tricks you know i had never done all these things before so i was all excited about trying jigs to reels and all these tricks and and this this older dancer came up to me who had been dancing for a long time and he said he said you know you know he was sort of giving us his opinions on what he thought of us as a new band and he's like i like you guys but man all you new bands all you want to do is shock and awe contra dance music <laughs> yeah and i was like oh yeah he's like you know it's just all fast and it shock and awe and that really stuck with me because i i feel like that's one way to do it and it's super fun and there are a lot of dancers who love that but i was like it just clued me in that not everybody actually likes that some people just want to go and just dance a dance to good tunes that aren't trying too hard and that's also okay right right i think that was a thing that we learned early on you know for better or for worse we liked to kind of program our whole evening you know mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that we like to do that was so that we could kind of get, try to kind of establish a kind of balance and a range so that mm -hmm. it wasn't, you know, too much of a certain thing and that there, we'd have a little sorbet between, between <laughs> other main dishes, uh, you know, some palate cleansers. Have a cheese course. Exactly. Once in a while. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, not a lot of bands would get to program a whole night or, you know, you'd have to work that out with the caller, but that gives you this amazing flexibility to make like a meta arrangement, right? Out of the whole arc of the whole evening. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was kind of what we would often aspire to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Taking people on a journey. Yeah. So, so while you're doing all these things, do you ever, have you ever thought or like, where is it in your mind about like what's traditional or what is traditional? And do you ever worry about that or wonder about it? I mean, a lot of tradition infuses so much of what you do. And I feel like, you know, it seems like a combination of repertoire and being like finding good repertoire and like re recovering, rediscovering tunes or songs that have been, neglected for a while or reinterpreting them in new ways, but then also adding all these new tunes and new compositions and new arrangements like together. What are your thoughts about tradition and innovation? Um, well, you know, the, I guess the thing is uh, my first impression of the contra dance scene was that, um, and the contra dance music scene was that uh, they were like, almost no rules, it seemed, <laughs> <laughs> you know, coming from as I was like coming from listening to these Scottish dance bands and these Irish bands, you know, contra dance, contra dance music just, it just seemed to be, you know, like you could do anything you wanted. And, you know, uh, and, and so, and so that was, that was part of what was really attractive to me, you know, that like all the, this range of possibility, you know, if you were to try to, if you were to play for me like some cutting edge Scottish country dance band that was doing all kinds of radical things, 
I might be a little more sensitive to that because like, because mm. I have that attachment to, to a certain sound, to a certain tradition and sound. Mm-hmm. And even in, in Irish music, you know, I mean, although, you know, it's probably more, there's more uh, um, rule breaking Irish bands, but I, I kind of feel like I sort of like a more traditional Irish sound. I don't, I don't need to hear Irish music in, in kind of in that context messed around with too much. I like a really traditional sound. I really appreciate, you know, the technique and the style of like a great Irish fiddle player or a great Irish flute player. And I, and there are people, you know, who have that attachment and that history with contra dancing. And I know, you know, like there, I remember years ago, like a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people in New England, you know, who still, I think, kind of held on to, they had a connection with an older style, a simpler approach to playing. But I didn't have that connection. And so I didn't, and I still don't really feel that, um, that boundary. Mm-hmm. So when you ask me, like, what do I think about, you know, a sense of tradition in in contra dance music, you know, uh, I mean, it would be hypocritical of me, I think, in a way, to kind of say that I think that there's some boundaries. You know, I mean, I know, I, I guess I just know, I would stop at just saying, you know, what it is that that I'd like to listen to or what I would want to, what I would enjoy dancing to. But mm-hmm. I, I could never, I could never bring myself to kind of say that I think it's wrong to do this or that in, you know, for contra dancing. That's violating some, some basic precept for me, mm-hmm. and and that's just because of the, my, the history that I have or don't have. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's a flourishing living tradition. If you don't have to worry about whether what you're doing is traditional, and you just feel free to do anything you want, it's wonderful, and it's that atmosphere helps create a lot of innovation right when you can just be free to write tunes and then people like them and they play them and it's that simple yeah i mean you know i mean the thing the thing that ultimately i'm going to respect more uh is when this is a thing that we've kind of like said a few times when radical ideas are underpinned by actually good playing when Mm -hmm. it's you know when it's players who can play, you know, have taken the time to kind of work on the craft of their instruments and can play, you know, rhythmically and, you know, and can play, um, yeah, you know, that they, that they kind of have that, have those fundamentals. And then if they choose to kind of do something crazy and wild with it, you know, maybe, maybe I like it or I don't like it, but, but I can respect it a lot more. Mm-hmm. And through all of this, you're being aware of the dancer's experience. You know, keeping that in mind. Yeah. And yeah. And, that, but, and, and, but, and also, but, you know, and the, the thing about that is that like different dancers like different things, you know, like, like mm-hmm. there are some dancers who are going to respond to certain kinds of playing and, you know, other dancers who are going to respond to something different. So, you know, and that's, and that's fine. There's no, you what know, was some have, of you? Hmm. No, good. No, go ahead. We don't have to have one way of playing, you know. Like, or is there's, you know, people can can choose what it is they want to gravitate towards. Yeah. As dancers or musicians. When you were a concert dancer, what was your favorite music to dance to? 
Well, uh, you know, I mean, I remember one of the one of the first big contra dances that I went to was uh, was the Boston. It was the VFW dance, although they were in a different place on that partic- that particular summer. They'd moved out of the VFW, but it was um, it was David Kaner and Mary Kay Brass and uh, and Bill Tomchek. I mean, that uh, uh, I just I remember that that just felt like it felt like heaven. You know, it was. Mm-hmm. It was great groove. It was wild. The, the, the tunes were, you know, Bill was you know, doing his wild improvisational thing and David was, it was great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably my favorite thing. I, I remember, you know, dance, doing square, to, not contra dancing, which you, you asked about, but I mean, I dancing to the horseflies. Mm-hmm. And, and, but again, like, like some of those, some of those experiences stand out because they're early experiences for me and they're kind of tied up with, you know, with just that that phase of kind of discovering the whole the whole scene, but but I do I do remember those those sounds like you know those I I think I think I, if I could still dance to to those people playing that way you know I'd be happy to. Mm. Yeah, that has been so wonderful talking with you and hearing your thoughts about all these things. Oh, thank you, Judy. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on while we're here? Anything we haven't talked about? I don't think so. I think I've pretty much emptied my my bladder. <laughs> I certainly asked you enough questions. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You asked good questions. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Keith. It's been so wonderful to have you here. The time has flown by, Julie. It's been it's been fun <laughs> to kind of think through all those all those things with you. So many memories. Yeah. Well, take care. You too. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing! The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.